In the early days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. All right. Hello, friends, and welcome to the February edition of the Libertarian Union Talk Show. I am your host for the evening and the master of ceremonies, if you will, Patrick McFarlane. You just heard that plug of the Libertarian Union from my lovely wife, who is here but ignoring me. So, well, we do this uh, little broadcast here, this talk show. So, uh, tonight's topic is gun violence and the recent shooting that happened I think, uh, over Valentine's Day in Florida, and we're joined uh, by a different cast of characters, uh, some new faces, uh, some old faces, uh, but with the first one, what we'll do, we'll start this off, just everyone will uh, take the mic and then tell tell the audience a little bit about themselves and what their projects are, uh, you know, and direct them towards any media that they have that they want to share and uh, then pass it on to the next. And then I suppose it'll come back to me and I'll introduce our topic or the topic will be introduced somehow. But for first off, I'll hand the reins off to Daniel from the Actual Anarchy. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing well, sir. Thank you for helping us figure out this technology. We are all a bit of Luddites, and uh, we got a couple of new folks with us here today, but um, I'm Daniel, <laughs> and uh, Robert is my co-host. He's on with me via phone, phone connection, and we run the Actual Anarchy podcast at actualanarchy.com and also readrothbar.com, conquesterbread.com, blackand.gold, uh, trubster.com, uh, Bunch of other stuff I can't even really remember at the moment. Oh, Last Nighters, that's our new version. That's the uh, normie-friendly version of our film analysis show. Uh, so that's kind of, you know, a fair amount of stuff that we do. Also, libertarianunion.com, which is a uh, compendium of all of us providers as well as a few others that haven't been able to join us today. But we all have shows that are of the ANCAP persuasion, and we've decided to have a communal living situation on the Internet. So... <laughs> I'll pass it uh, to Robert, my co-host, if, if you can hear us. Can we hear you? Oh, yeah, Daniel. I mean, you said everything that we do, so I don't really know what I can add. Do you have a, you have a particular question of mine? Hello? For you? Oh, just, you know, tell us about uh, what you've been working on lately, I suppose. I mean, we're kind of free-falling this thing right now. <laughs> Sure. So I'm working on some T-shirt designs and uh, a web comic that is very ancappy, libertarian-y type themed, and uh, that's going to be on Trepture.com uh, as soon as that thing launches, and it'll be coming out. I think like twice a week is what I'm feeling right about now. Yeah, Mike, uh, how are you been doing? Um, I notice you're been. What are you working on these days? Yeah, so um, this is my first appearance here on uh, Libertarian Union uh, talk show. 
Glad to be here. I'm Mike Tilden. I'm the host of the Battle for Liberty podcast. You can find that over at battleforliberty.com. If you want to get a hold of me on Twitter, that's mybattleliberty. So battleforliberty.com and mybattleliberty, best uh, best ways to to find the show. Uh, I'm all over iTunes, Stitcher, basically any podcatcher. Uh, but my show focuses on uh, the journey of what I call the libertarian novice because in the grand scheme of things, I've been libertarian for about five years and anarchist for probably three and a half years. So in the grand scheme of things, I'm a novice as well. Uh, but I like to study and I like to teach, and so I decided to make a show dedicated to people who are new in the movement, uh, learning, getting their feet wet. I tend to focus a lot of time and attention on uh, people of the Republican conservative persuasion because that's where I came from. And so I have a lot of uh, talking points and arguments uh, to throw their way. But uh, I have been, so, so I've been doing the podcast for about a year and a half. And uh, for a good solid year, I was doing a weekly show, release every Friday morning. And uh, then my family expanded. We, got, we had our third child, and I took a new job that has had me running, running ragged all over the place. So I took about four months off from the podcast, but just recently came back to the air with episode number 55 uh, and plan on uh, getting back to at least twice a month, if not back to a weekly show. So that's what I've been doing, and I am thrilled to be here joining you guys to talk about guns. And uh, who's, who's up next? Drake, uh, we have another newcomer to the show. Drake, do you want to talk a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm one of the less exciting members here since I do not have a podcast. It's more that I'm a student activist who's done many, let's see, a couple thousand hours now of just libertarian study, and I've kind of gotten chance from uh, Daniel and a few other members of the Libertarian Union to become on their shows as the guests since apparently I'm interesting and good at ranting, always important skills libertarians, and I know all the stats and figures. Um, I'm building a website. It's currently still under development and embarrassingly, embarrassingly far behind where I thought it would be at this point, so I'm not going to give out the URL for it. If you'd like to see more of my contact, if you go on YouTube and search Y-A-L Cincinnati Debate, you'll find one of my recent appearances on a debate stage with Republicans, Libertarians, Democrats, and Socialists, where we got the Socialists to admit that their favored regimes would look something like North Korea and Cuba, except that the U.S. capitalist system was crushing them economically, otherwise North Korea is a bastion of human rights. Words from their own mouth. No, I, I, it's, it's ridiculous. But so I do lots of activism and tabling and debates and all of that, more than internet content. Alrighty, yeah, and that that reminds me of that article that Reason. This is an aside from our gun topic uh, thing, but Reason magazine had that article where they were saying that weed was legal in North Korea, so therefore we should look to Korea for human liberty and human rights. You remember that fiasco? I do, I do. Did you guys, did any of you get the, were any of you LP members and then left over the last year? Because I just got the phone call recently because my membership that I got back when Austin Peterson was in the running um, expired. And they were like, hey, why'd you not renew your dues to the LP? And I'm like, 
Gary Johnson, Sarwark, and Arvin Vara. And they're like, <laughs> yeah, we've, we've heard that a lot. We've heard that but a I'll lot. Probably... <laughs> yeah, no, he literally said, yes, Arvin Vara and Nick Sarwark has been the majority of the reason I, when I've called when they said they dropped out of the LP. <laughs> but All I'm right. planning to get back in, in time for Orlando and change their leadership. Sorry, I, I ramble. Oh, no, off no, no. I know, I know that that's in that's in the works, and we were. I think Michael Heiss is working on that. But um, did you hear how Scott Horton and Dave Smith might both be running for Libertarian Party office? Oh no, I didn't hear that. Yeah, it was a recent announcement when Mike Heiss was on. Was that Lions of Liberty? He was on when he announced that. But one of his recent appearances, he talked about that a little bit. So yeah. Well, I, I half expected the uh, the LP to kind of come out and make a statement about anti-guns or something like that. But <laughs> So, well, obviously, okay. this show is kind of uh, happening in the backdrop with, with the uh, gun violence that happened last week. And, man, it's it's been a terrible time to be on social media. And I'm not a big fan of social media at all. I think I've said a, quite a bit recently that... Everything's toxic, and especially, for some reason, especially the gun debate really gets me right in the anger spot. So, <laughs> does anyone have any stories, perhaps, that we could start the discussion off with of people you've interacted with or had conversations with on social media about this? I'll, I'll, I'll pitch I'll it start... over. Okay, yeah, you go ahead. Yep. Sorry. I'll take what, a first really short positive one. So my, I think my only social media post on my own timeline about this, and luckily I run a separate libertarian page so I can post more controversial things, the post on my timeline just said, if you really care about gun violence and deaths by guns, end the war on drugs. And just went through a couple of facts and figures, 56% of gun homicides due to gang violence caused by war on drugs, etc., etc., and... Got some liberals, got some conservatives that kind of like came together. A little bit of arguments, but nothing super heated. And overall positive. And besides that, I've mostly stayed the heck away from the conversation because I'm in college and most of my friends are very left. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. The, the struggle the struggle is real there, I'm telling you. I'm just remembering from my, my days on campus and stuff too. But well, I'll swing this one over to Mike. Mike, have you had any, you know... Good conversations, bad conversations. No, this so this is one I stay away from on social media, um, mostly because there's nothing intellectual or educational to be gained. Uh, it's all hyperbolic, emotional screeching, and I have very little tolerance for that. Especially, I mean, on social media, these are people I've never met, never will meet, and I'm never going to convince them. They're never going to convince me. But it's the usual stuff. I mean, after every every time there's something uh, that happens that's incredibly sad and incredibly tragic. Uh, I, I guess the only the only takeaway I have so far, uh, right off the bat, I'm sure I'll have more to say later. But but the biggest takeaway I have is, you know, it seems every time something like this happens where there is uh, just a ton of sadness and and loss of life and dismay. People want to jump the gun and make decisions when they're emotional. You know, it's, I can't remember if it was Dave Smith or Scott Horton who said it, but they said, you know, why haven't we learned yet that when you're the most emotional and the most hysterical you've been in a very long time, why do you think it's that particular time that's best to make a very sweeping, important decision? And that's, that's exactly where my head is at, is that 
you know, if there's something to be done about this, if there's something that can be done, and I'm not convinced that there is human condition and all that, uh, but if there is something that can be done, the time to make the decision is not when you're distraught. You know, if these people truly are weeping in front of their keyboards as they claim to be, which I don't think they are, I think that's complete BS, but let's say they are. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and say, yeah, okay, this, this hurt them in their feels and they're crying at night and hugging their children and um, if that's the case, this is not the time to be making decisions. That's all I got on on the intro to it because I just don't I don't engage in these conversations I don't find them productive not not in Facebook and Twitter and places like that. Yeah, and I I haven't really gotten in many gun violence uh, conversations this this time around because it it is just the same thing over and over again and then people yell about statistics and all that and I don't even care about statistics like I'm not going to sit here and make the statistics argument because you know as we know I guess being um, Austrian economists that statistics don't the statistics don't work if the underlying logic doesn't work either and so I kind of approach it from a well if you're anti-violence then you can't be pro-gun control those aren't two you know those aren't two positions that can be reconciled you know but um, how about you Daniel or Robert probably Daniel have you had any good conversations I've had a few good rants in me um I find it very interesting that the people on the left who were eating Tide Pods just a few weeks ago and telling us that Trump is literally Hitler and that we need to resist and wear pussy hats in March uh, are now trying to give the president more spying powers and asking him to take away their guns or, or other people's guns. Uh, so my question to them is, well, if, if he's literally Hitler and you want to resist, what are you going to resist with once all the guns are gone? And if they want to talk statistics, I like to throw these at them. 20th century, 262 million killed by their own government, 123 million killed in war. That's roughly 3% of all the people who lived in the 20th century. I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, what is the real imminent threat, it's not the, you know, random acts of violence that are, of course, terrible. And, uh, you know, there are many reasons why this particular uh, gun-free zone you know, the guy didn't follow the sign, right? He broke the law. Um, adding another law to this domino of failures is not going to prevent this. It's not having gun-free zones. It's not having government indoctrination day camps. So that's that's where I stand on this thing. And I know Robert's got a few good rants in himself. So pass it off to uh, to my co-host here. Well, you mentioned gun-free zones, and that's what the thing I wanted to bring up when you. you bring up this topic just because is there anything more patently obvious that gun-free zones are like ringing the dinner bell to a criminal it's it's like advertising that yes we are defenseless every everywhere else in the world where you have something you want to protect anything you find valuable you defend it somehow you protect it either with armed guards or with some other form of security. But you don't just say, hey, we're defenseless here, and hope that some law written on some piece of paper by some politician is going to protect you. Or that a cop who is 
you know, 10 minutes away and then is going to sit and coward outside while the shooting goes on inside because they need to, what, establish a perimeter or whatever, and that usually takes a couple of hours. Meanwhile, the carnage is going on inside. I, I can't even get a progressive to admit that gun-free zones are a bad idea. It's like they're so inconsistent across so many things, like the idea that Daniel was talking about of having, well, Trump is Hitler, but let's have Trump take all the guns away. That That's just some sort of a mind fuck that doesn't make any kind of sense. You need to have some sort of mental gymnastics to square that circle. But does anybody think that gun-free zones are a good idea? Every time they're brought up that gun-free zones are a terrible idea, progressive I, that I see usually just changes the subject, doesn't respond. Has anybody had any kind of experience where they see somebody going, yeah, maybe it's not the best idea? Usually they just complain about, oh, well, if you give teachers oh. a gun, they're just going to start murdering students. And I don't have any I have questions successfully specifically managed to anybody. One, Go ahead. I have successfully convinced one progressive friend um, about gun-free zones. The first going to throw out one other small thing, just since you guys mentioned kind of the Austrian school's dismissal of statistics. While I agree with that, since that's not really the kind of public view, I dropped a link in the chat, I don't really know how you can share it, that goes through essentially debunks the Australian gun, buy, gun buyback program because people talk about that removing all um, mass shootings in Australia. But what you can look at is things like how in New Zealand at the same time they had similar levels of mass shootings and school shootings, and New Zealand kept its essentially super unrestrictive gun laws and had nearly the same drop in overall gun violence and specifically school and mass shootings. So even in terms of just statistics alone, we still have things to fall back on. But what I managed to convince a progressive friend with was a thought experiment that went a little something like this. Imagine, I'm sorry, this one's a little bit long, so I apologize, and I'm stealing it from someone else. I don't even remember who I, might be Dave Smith I'm taking it from. Imagine if there was a car on the side of the road and you had a brick in your hand. Would you throw your brick through the car's window? Probably not. Well, what if you really hate the guy? Maybe. Now, what if this guy had actually killed your parents? And not only that, but throwing the brick through the car window would bring your parents back to life. I would throw the brick through the car window, and I assume all you would as well. But what if that car was in a brick-free zone? <laughs> like, no, I'm getting that brick through the car window. Like, I'm getting that brick through the car window even if there's armed guards or a tank outside of it because it's not the tool that matters, it's the incentive. Some of the biggest, like, destructive things in the U.S. have been with pressure cookers and planes and, what was it, a truck in Paris. So the question is incentives and whether it's bombing the Middle East or making school children feel like literal prisoners and criminals, the incentives in this system are all kinds of wrong. Sorry, I'm gonna throw that someone else out there. Yeah, well, respond. so while, while you were giving while you were giving that uh, that story that description, 
<clears throat> I didn't know it was going. I hadn't heard it before. And when you said every single one of us would probably throw the brick if it would uh, enact vengeance on your your family's killer and bring them back simultaneously, in my mind I'm sitting here going, okay, I'm probably the outlier because from a philosophical level, I still wouldn't. I'm not saying emotionally I wouldn't. I'm like, I've never been in that situation. Maybe I would, but I'd like to think maybe I wouldn't. And that, we don't have to go into reasons why I wouldn't. But the reason that it's such an illustrative uh, example is because when you get to the place where I've accepted the premise of the argument, which is, okay, I've decided that I'm going to throw the brick, and as my mind is grappling with that reality that I've made the decision that I'm going to kill someone, and then all of a sudden you say, but it's a brick-free zone. Immediately my mind goes, that, that doesn't matter. I've already decided to kill someone. And that's, I mean, it's a perfect example. It's a great story. I like it. And be sure when you're done talking to direct, your, to direct a question to someone. Oh, that's how this game works. Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't have a question, but uh, <laughs> I, I, see, uh, I see Dan laughing a bit. What, what say you about this? Well, criminals are going to be criminals, you know. They're not going to follow the posted signs or pay heed to whatever laws are in the books. I mean, that's why they're criminals. Um, I just don't understand why anyone would want to desire to make um, people who are more vulnerable, the most vulnerable in society, be even less able to defend themselves. Like, just imagine, um, you know, smaller, frail women, older women, or, or just women in general, or groups of men, you know, there's no way to even those odds without a firearm. I mean, that's like the best equipment you can have on you when you're confronted in those life-threatening situations, and to have that uh, option removed is just crazy and ridiculous. I don't think that that uh, really helps. I mean, just imagine if criminals knew that no one had guns. How much more criminal activity would they do versus 20% of the people might have a gun? You know, not everyone needs to have a gun to have that deterrent be uh, ever present in the in the minds of that criminal. I mean, they're going to take a personal risk in perpetrating that crime against you, and if they know that you're not carrying a, a firearm, then it makes it all that much easier for them. So, I don't know if that was very coherent. Um, I was trying to respond to some chat questions here. No, it, it's you guys very accurate. Yeah, I'll go I, to Drake. Sorry, I'm I'm a bit of a attention hog. Um, I threw a link in earlier of a statistics sheet from Gun Owners of America, and its section C goes through things like how um, Kinesaw. Uh, passed a law to allow more um, that allow people to keep firearms in the house. It saw a 89% reduction in ro household robberies. Um, you see criminals that are pulled are very unlikely to go after someone that has a gun. Um, there's literally there's statistics saying that what Dan's intuition said is completely true that criminals don't like getting shot and try to avoid it. So if they think you may have a gun, they'll try to avoid it. Um, let's see. I, hey, Mike, I'm going to pass it off to you. I don't know what the question is, but answer. That's all right. I'll, I'll comment as well. I'll just add on to what you were saying. Um, you know, we have other evidence as well. I mean, not just areas where gun ownership is 
uh, is allowed where it previously wasn't and you see positive numbers, we have the exact opposite true as well. Places where gun ownership is banned, either actually or virtually, places like Chicago and uh, Washington, D.C., and of course their, their violent crime rates are through the roof because the criminals all know that law-abiding citizens are not able to defend themselves. So uh, it, it, there's double proof on that point. Um, let's bring let's bring uh, Robert in. Do you have yeah, uh, something to add on that? It's, it's it's just willful ignorance because you never see. Well, I never see. I, I see these those points brought up by you know people on our side, but you never see anybody on the left have any kind of real answer. They're all they're, they always knee jerk back to get rid of all the guns because anyone who advocates for gun ownership is evil, like evil incarnate, and they call the NRA a terrorist organization when they're one of the more moderate <laughs> groups in regards to gun ownership. I, I, I go beyond what they advocate for. I mean, they're essentially a lobby group, and they get things done, but if you're talking about you know outlawing a thing, I'm uh, against that. You have to ask yourself. I mean, there are things that can be done with contracts and covenant communities and that sort of thing where we all kind of agree to allow or disallow certain things. But I think you have to ask yourself, how much violence are you willing to use to disallow somebody having a thing? And the progressives, who are generally socially liberal, will allow something like drug use or at least pot. And get, yeah, get, hey, get get government out of the bedroom. Get them out of you know. If I want to ingest a smoke a leaf, you know, it's fine. But when it comes to being able to defend yourself, because they they classify guns as you know a tool to only commit murder. And uh, I, I, I don't think that objects can be classified in that sense. I mean, sure, anything can be used to commit murder. Um, in reality, guns are projectile accelerators and can be used for any number of things. And the fact that more guns – guns prevent – more crime than they commit. You know, it's the problem of the seen and the unseen. And you just, like Daniel was saying, you know, if criminals knew that people were unarmed, it would be like open season, fox in the hen house type stuff. But if houses, you know, if it's a 50-50 shot, if you're going to get the business end of a shotgun when you break into a guy's house, how likely are you to break in? I mean, not to not to mention all the problems that government causes. I mean, if we're even talking about crime, how much crime is caused by eliminating opportunities in the workplace, regulations that prevent entrepreneurs from starting new businesses and creating value, so people are kind of like railroaded through the minimum wage and other things like that to go into crime. 
as a as a you know a profession. And I'm just kind of rambling and ranting at this point. Anybody can jump in. Daniel, do you have any more thoughts on this kind of thing? Well, just to jump off on the hypocrisy, if they want to confiscate guns, well, how are they going to do that? Well, they're going to consolidate the guns into the hands of government and go door to door and use guns to confiscate the guns. So that's not a anti-gun thing. That's a pro-gun thing. That's Let's concentrate all the guns into the hands of the people who are perpetrating the most amount of violence in the world, in, in the history of the world. And I think that that's a very foolish thing to uh, to try to do. Yeah, and then there's the uh, argument that, you know, the guns are to defend against a tyrannical government. And they people scoff at that, at the ability of an AR-15 to defend against a, a modern military. And... There are numerous examples of AR-15s and AK-47s and RPGs and any normal sort of thing of preventing and stopping a modern military in its tracks. I mean, what kind of quagmire are we in in Afghanistan, Iraq, Vietnam, any number of places where there is no centralized government to take over and everybody bows down to? You have independent people just resisting. So what are you left to do? Either you need to like essentially exterminate hundreds of millions of people, which is impossible when you are outnumbered <laughs> just hundreds of thousands to one. So, I mean, I, these arguments all seem perfectly like logical and they're, they're all slam dunks, yet is it just willful ignorance that the progressives just kind of like turn a blind eye to these arguments? Well, I don't really know what it is. I'll jump in on that just real quickly because they're totally hypocritical. If it's um, kids in a school here, it's a big deal, but if it's a half a million kids in Iraq, it's no big thing. If it's drone strikes on hospitals, it's no big deal. Um, and then, you know, if it's if they claim it's about saving lives, well, how many lives are actually taken through violence via a firearm? Because most of the, the gun deaths are actually suicides. Another large percentage are gang-related violence in gun-free cities, by the way. And then how many guns are, or how many instances are guns used as rescue safety equipment that actually prevents death or violent acts? And I, I believe that there is a um, a study that was posted by the principal libertarian where there are upwards of two million instances per year where a firearm was used to mitigate violence, eliminate violence, and save lives. So when you're talking about you know a few thousand people, and every death is a tragedy, of course, but a few thousand people dying uh, as a result of firearm use in a, an aggressive, violent act versus up to two million people saved it's it's no contest i mean those are those numbers aren't even close to each other and then the hypocrisy of you know if it's a foreign person they don't count but if it's someone here it all of a sudden counts i mean i thought that everyone was uh people were people and everyone's equally you know amazing and gets a trophy and and all the rest of that uh, leftist claptrap so i'll let uh can we um 
Uh, can we yeah, get our uh, conspiratorial tinfoil hats on a little bit, just a little bit? I, I'm curious yeah. to hear other people's opinions. Other people's opinions on just how bought and paid for the media is. Because it seems like whenever anybody is screaming about, you know, if you got a crying per. Oh, I think we lost him. Or for, you know, oh. government to do something, to make pass common sense legislation, or to cheer on a war. The media is like in lockstep, and they will facilitate that all day long. But if you got somebody talking about Ed and the Fed, or you got somebody saying that you know they're, we're already fighting like 18 wars, we don't need to fight 19 wars, or you know you might need guns in case of a tyrannical government, it's like oh no no I'm sorry that is not allowable opinion. We're not interested in that. It seems like they're bought and paid for by you know the military-industrial complex and other type of actors, the people that want gun confiscation. So, Patrick, I'm sure you might have some thoughts along these lines. Oh, yeah. I sure as hell do. <laughs> I don't... The thing that strikes me is, you know, whether... So, this is the first time we're really getting the crisis actor narrative in the mainstream, and I don't know what the hell happened. You know, I'm suspicious. I'm not claiming there's any smoking gun, but I'm suspicious as hell. You know, when we know... When we know and it have illustrated that the mainstream media uses lies to commit war and to cause war abroad, is it really a far stretch to think that they would do it at home? I mean, we have the incubator babies testimony from the first Gulf War, and that was a lie. It was a lie. We know it's a lie. And we have the... Um, that the Syrian girl who was a, supposedly tweeting from Syria in very good English, a six-year-old girl, and uh, I think that James Corbett and Trey Weaver and um, Kyle Ancelone just did an episode on this. I don't remember the number, but they proved that this girl is not who she says she is. She's reading from a teleprompter. She's not really from Syria. So why would it be a stretch to think that they wouldn't lie here? And the thing that I just, whether you think these kids are actors or not, it doesn't really matter i just think that it is so strange that not a week so so the shooting happens on wednesday and i think we should get into the story of the shooting and i think drake drake can walk us through what the news said happened but i think it's for me it's just very strange that the shooting happens on wednesday and a bunch of kids who supposedly were there had friends died saw some shit that weekend they spend preparing this huge campaign, this huge political campaign. And on the weekend and the days after, they're lobbying in in Congress and they're giving speeches on top of cars with bullhorns. And these are 15 and 16-year-old kids. If I saw all my friends get shot in front of me, I'm not lobbying and giving speeches in front of a bunch of people that same weekend. And so whether it's real, if it's real, then that's in super-duper poor taste. I mean... That's ridiculous. You're going to use these kids as pawns like that so openly. And if it is fake, which I have my suspicions, but, you know, I'm not claiming anything red smoking gun. But what I just mean is that, you know, it just seems so odd to me. But, you know, maybe we should pass it pass it off to Drake. Do you want to, you know, touch on that and then tell us what the, the story is of what happened on Valentine's Day? Sure. First, I would like to say that there have been lies in the U.S. specifically to manipulate the public, the most uh, well-known ones being about the war on drugs 
things about uh, there was some case where they claimed that marijuana caused a man to go crazy and like kill his family and a few few other cases. Uh, the book Chasing the Screams, an excellent cover, just kind of the propaganda that's been pushed out, or things like claiming that more money had been stolen by heroin junkies to fuel uh, their addiction than total thefts in the United States that year. So there are cases of lies to the public for those. I don't really know much about with this mass shooting. Um, but so I'll go a little bit into this. If you want an in-depth breakdown, uh, the ANCAP Barber Shop, I believe, was episode 36, another member of the Libertarian Union. I'm just covered this in a lot of detail, and I'll be kind of using their sources and their episode as my main thing. So the first thing to know about this school shooting is there were there was one tip, at least one tip to the FBI hotline call-in where someone tried to report this boy as or this man as a potential school shooter. There was at least another one through the online website portal to the FBI. There were at least 20 calls to the sheriff's department um, over the years. There was 30 plus instances the sheriffs had actually shown up to their house. Um, you have things like during the court case where, let's see, um, so when this boy, he was orphaned, um, and when when his attorneys were talking about it later, talking about the death of his adopted mother, she was calling police to help deal with him because he had so many violent outbursts. Like his, his defense attorney called him a broken child. So this is someone who had multiple, nearly in the three digits of call-ins saying this person is a danger and a menace. Back when he was attending the school, he wasn't even allowed to wear a backpack because they thought he would commit a school shooting. But obviously, you have a monopoly service. Only the police and FBI can provide defense, so they're the only ones you can call, and they did nothing, as we know. Day of the shooting, they had just had a fire drill that morning. Um, this man comes in, pulls the fire alarm, and gets a gun out of a bag and just starts shooting. CNN has a decent article on it. Lots of emotional spin, as you can probably guess. Um, shooting lots of students, lots of teachers, and... While this is going on, there's a the police officer on duty for the school is recorded outside as you hear gunshots not going in with potentially up to four other officers on the scene and doing nothing. Um, after this all winds down, the shooter attempts to escape alongside the other students and then is caught a couple hours later somewhere wandering the roads. That's the fast, easy version of it. And I will say one other fast thing from what I've heard of people that watched the videos in more depth, since there were lots of calls made, tweets made, videos taken during the shooting. It almost seems to me that a lot of the, the children that have been traumatized by this experience are out there trying to preach and change and talk to almost alleviate their own guilty conscience. Because if you have four people charge a shooter, you will take him down and stop him, but probably two people get killed in doing it. 
and this was one of the shootings where you no one left alive was courageous at all. I just there were a few people that tried to do things, like a math teacher that ushered people into the classroom that got shot, and a few others, but it almost seems like the people left alive are guilty that they could have saved people and they just kind of stood there and because they didn't stand up when they had a real chance to do it, they're standing up now kind of like it's just to tie it into other things, how it seems like a lot of people on campus right now are so intent on civil rights because they hear all these great stories about people that acted to abolish Jim Crow laws or acted for LGBT rights. It's People are people are trying to replicate the heroism of others because they feel pathetic is how it seems to me. I don't there are conspiracies that I kind of see being realistic. I don't see any here, although I really don't know enough about it. So that's my two cents. I'll pass it over to Dan. Just do you feel conspiratorial angle? Is that the, the, the reason, rationale I have for why they would be kind of standing up and speaking up make sense to you, or do you think it's something different, deeper, shallower, whatever? I don't know. Well, the, these are good questions. I would say that being that there is a monopoly provider of security and, and justice, that they have no market incentive, no market feedback mechanism with which to uh, evaluate their service that they're providing. And that alone is, is enough to make me not want to have that kind of service. But Muted. in this particular case, I have seen mention, and this is all unverified as far as I'm aware, but that in the wake of the Trayvon Martin fiasco, that there were calls to make arrests go away related to students in the schools. And so there was a allegedly a concerted effort to juice the stats and to turn a blind eye to several instances of, of you know previously reported crimes that would have resulted in arrests. And this of course would uh, escalate, you know, over the course of time, bigger and bigger crimes would be ignored. And uh, if they were, say, using a, a quota system of sorts, like, oh, we've already gotten too many arrests this month, let's not report anything else for the rest of the month, then it's not long before the, the, the people who are perpetrating these crimes catch wind of this and realize that, hey, if we just wait till the end of the month or the end of the quarter, we can kind of get away with whatever we want. And there's a whole uh, Twitter thread that is discussing this. And again, I don't know if it's true or verified, but it does make sense to me that when you have a bureaucratic monopoly just, justice provider that wants to justify themselves to show results and get praise and bigger budgets and get awards and get invited to the, to the White House and to consult with other agencies and other uh, cities and counties to, hey, how'd you get such wonderful stats? Oh, we made them up. I mean, you know, they can't say that, of course. But, uh, you know, it, it sounds plausible to me that that is one of the things that um, took place in this particular area. And further, it would ex go a long way in explaining how someone who got visited by the police 30-plus times 
was still able to be uh, uh, able to do a violent act like this, still able to purchase a, a firearm that they shouldn't have been able to purchase, I would imagine. I mean, if someone is, is truly a risk at, at this level, it seems like they would be on somebody's radar, and from all reports that I've seen, he was on their radar, and they just didn't do anything. So I'll pass it over to, uh, to Mike. Um, uh, I don't know if, if people uh, watching this are aware, but you are a former police officer, so I wanted to see what insights you have into this from a tactical aspect, because from what I understand, they had a resource officer who didn't go in, and there were potentially three additional officers uh, waiting outside while the carnage was taking place inside. And I know in some chats we've been having, you said that that was outdated tactics. Uh, so I'll just pass it off to you and, and let you uh, uh, take it from there, sir. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. Um, so, yeah, I spent five years in law enforcement, a sworn police officer, uh, in a patrol division, eventually uh, rising to the rank of sergeant before I left law enforcement. Um, and my department trained heavily on active shooters. We were um, near a major university with uh, many tens of thousands of students. Um, and this was in the wake of the Virginia Tech shooting that I was employed at a major university. So um, we were preparing, constantly preparing for and uh, training on active shooters and things of that nature. And part of what you learn is that in the world prior to the Columbine incident, prior to the Columbine shooting, um, which I believe was Littleton, Colorado, um, the, the, the basic tactic for most small local law enforcement agencies was to wait for backup. When, when you get the the report that there's an active shooting going on, the wisdom at the time was that officers were to wait until an elite specialized team could arrive on scene, whether that was a SWAT team. Um, not all areas call them SWAT teams, but they all have elite teams at least accessible to them, whether it's county level or state level that can be dispatched. Sometimes in the past they thought it was worth waiting. Well, Columbine taught them otherwise. Uh, the, the amount of death and destruction that was that was inflicted on that school and those victims was something we had not experienced in the past. And so that's when law enforcement uh, tactics began to change significantly. And they moved from a, a weight and a mass numbers strategy to what they called, uh, it, it's, it's a ridiculous term, but they call it rolling thunder. Is the, is the new tactic that was taught. And this was something that I was trained in heavily that we practiced on a quarterly basis where we would uh, get in teams of one or two people, sometimes three at the most, and we would, uh, we would train in simulations where we would be rolling through large buildings on, uh, in, in the facility that, that we covered, uh, practicing for taking down an active shooter. And so... As a caveat before I say anything further, I haven't done a ton of research into this shooting. I don't know why that anywhere between one and four sheriff's deputies uh, waited to go in and failed to go in and stop this guy sooner. I don't know why they did that, and I'm not claiming to know why they did that. What I am saying, though, is that it's indicative of outdated training, outdated models for response to active shooter. Um, it's, it's one of the possibilities is that they were waiting to amass larger numbers and to get a strategy and to um, to think this thing through because that's the way it always used to be done. It was 
get a schematic of the building and figure out where the exits are and cover all the exits and make sure you have enough people and enough weaponry and enough armor and and you wait and you wait and you wait and while you're waiting people are dying and so after Columbine that tactic completely changed to you wait for maybe a minute maybe a minute if you're the first on scene you get the biggest weapon you have available to you whether it's your sidearm or if you have a rifle or a shotgun in the car you get it and you wait for maybe a minute for one more person and if it's gonna be more than about a minute you go in by yourself and you do what's called rolling thunder and if you can get two or three people, great. That's, that's even better. The, the more you can get, the better. But you don't wait long. And you do not stop and render aid to bleeding victims. You do not search every single room. You roll through that building as fast as you possibly can, listening for sounds, listen, uh, trying to find where the people are, and take them out as fast as you possibly can. You step over dying people if you have to. It, that's, so, so you could see how the tactic changed from one that was... Uh, that was far more deliberate and time-consuming to one that recognized that the way that these school, these massive shootings go is m most of the time these shooters, uh, these actors, these criminals, most of the time they're very opportunistic, right? They check doors, they see if they're locked. If they're locked, they don't spend a lot of time on them. They move on. They, they try to kill and injure as many people as they can as quickly as they can. And you use that knowledge to your advantage when you're combating it, right? So whether you're a law enforcement officer or a person on the scene, the tactic always has to be disrupt their train of thought however you can. If it's, uh, I'm, uh, Daniel, I'm looking at, you, at, your, at your wall. If it's take the guitar off the wall and hit them over the head with it, do it. If it's pick up the floor lamp and hit them over the head with that, do it. If it's pick up a bunch of desks and throw desks at the person, do it. Uh, if it's take a fire extinguisher off the wall and spray it in their face, do it. Um, these are the kinds of things that we were trained in that we were actually actively trained in the community in and so this was a, a very long-winded way of saying it's possible although I don't have proof but it's possible that this was outdated training and that the officers were waiting uh, either for more backup or for a better plan and they failed uh, to implement this rolling thunder tactic Micah I have a question for you yeah go ahead I have heard that most of these active shooter types, once confronted with armed resistance, will either do death by, you know, cop or shoot themselves. Is that substantiated in what you are aware of and how you've been trained or any research that you're aware of? Because it seems to me that most of the time they're going into places where there is not likely to be armed resistance, and that is that fox in the hen house scenario. But if they were to meet with resistance, then you know they're, they're typically coward types, right? So yeah, yeah. So my the, the training that I received. Uh, now keep in mind, this was seven years ago. Now it's been seven years since I've been in law enforcement, and so things could have changed, or maybe I'm remembering incorrectly. But um, you are correct in what you've said, from my recollection, and that is that in these situations. Like I, like I said a little bit ago, these people are opportunistic and they're not looking for a lot of, they're not looking for a big struggle, right? Um, we have at least anecdotal evidence, if not statistical evidence, to show that these people do seek out gun-free zones, whether explicit or implied gun-free zones. Uh, these people seek them out, and at least in the, the movie theater shooting in Aurora, Colorado, um, you know, there were something like 15 or 20 movie theaters in that 
tiny little area, and then one of them was explicitly a gun-free zone. And what do you know? That's the one that was shot up. Um, again, that's anecdotal. I don't know if uh, if the statistics bear that out, but I do recall being trained that uh, the resistance that these people meet is often enough to make them stop killing innocents. Even if all they're doing is paying attention to you and trying to kill you as a law enforcement officer, you've you've won the day if they've stopped killing innocents. Uh, and but even better, they're probably going to turn the gun on themselves or hold themselves in a room, and it's going to it's going to calm down and slow down quite a bit. And that's why Rolling Thunder as a tactic developed is this was a response to the acknowledgement that uh, these kinds of things can be disrupted fairly easily. And I say easily, I don't mean easily in terms of it's easy to have that much courage or it's easy to 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 look yourself and pump yourself up and say, okay, I'm about to go up against a guy with a, a, with a rifle and all I have in my hand is a fire extinguisher. That's not easy. I'm not claiming that that's easy. What I'm claiming is that if you can disrupt them, you will be more effective than you think you will be. I hope that answered your a, question. I have a, another follow-up question with that. I had done some uh, the active shooter, active shooter trainings and I'd heard how there was a big change in active shooter trainings where it used to be, I think it was like hide, for, essentially just teaching you to hide, sure. and now it's the um, run, hide, fight. So it's kind of... Yeah. But my, my question would be, is this kind of a, well, a top-down thing where someone assigns something without actually knowing what works best and now everyone's learned one method and then doesn't want to change the second method and it's kind of left us with the worst of both worlds? Well, that's always possible. I, I'm not going to sit here and say that that's incorrect. Anytime you're dealing with a large bureaucracy and law enforcement is the worst of both worlds. Not only is it a large bureaucracy, but it's a collection of large bureaucracies and small bureaucracies, none of whom have any sort of market signal as to whether or not they're doing the right thing. So you have kind of a comedy of errors when you're talking about national law enforcement. There's actually very few national law enforcement organizations. Most law enforcement is very, very small community organizations, but they all are trained from national organizations. And so to your point, is it possible that this new tactic is just as bad as the old tactic? I'm guessing this is the question that you're asking, is that, you know, well, if the old tactic was so bad, why is the new tactic so good? It's more um, of a question of, hey, there was this old bad tactic, and everyone was trained in it, so if we had had half the population trained in one and half in another, and we'd actually seen what works well, rather than, hey, everyone learns one tactic, it doesn't work, everyone learns new tactic, maybe works, or instead of like the kind of decentralized model of many different tactics tried at once. Kind of, if that question makes sense to you. <laughs> yeah, I think I get what you're, what you're trying to get at, and, and it's not a simple answer, unfortunately, because of the point that I've already brought up, and that is, um, you're not dealing with one agency, you're dealing with thousands and thousands of agencies and um, at each agency the quality of training sometimes is only as good as the quality of the person in charge of the training program. Um, but uh, just to kind of to bring it back just a little bit, the reason I would say something like Rolling Thunder, as ridiculous as a name as that is, uh, something like that is 
more effective in my view is that from a common sense self-preservation standpoint, you know, I haven't been a police officer for seven years, and my wife and I talk all the time about situational awareness and and what we would do if worst case scenarios. I mean, this sounds stupid, and people make fun of us all the time in our group of friends. We tell them, we say, when we're driving down the road on a car trip, my wife and I are talking about, okay, if this situation happened, what would you do, right? And we talk about this stuff. We talk about what's an improvised weapon. Um, we do drills in our home to say if someone's trying to come in the front door, where's the best place for us to stand so that they can't see us, and if they shoot at us, they're not shooting at the kids' rooms. You know, we do these kinds of things. And so coming from an, uh, a standpoint of self-preservation and situational awareness, the new tactic, this rolling thunder, makes way more sense to me. I can't tell you it works better. I don't know. And to your point, it's possible that it's just as bad as the first because, again, we, we have uh, a hodgepodge of agencies that really uh, don't have market signals and market forces telling them in real time uh, what people value and what people don't value. So it's always subject to that pitfall. And I'm not claiming that it's perfect, but I will tell you from my own opinion, I think it's better. And I didn't direct that to anyone. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll jump foul. in here. Um, is there anyone who is familiar with the stats on the number of incidents that involve rifles because the AR-15 seems to be the thing that everyone is is pointing the finger at right now. And I, from I what I understand, pre... rifles are like such a small percentage of incidents and it just so happens that Unmuted. the AR-15 is the one that is mostly used in these small number of instances because they're so uh, popular. And they they they're black and scary looking, but there are hunting rifles that do the exact same thing, or even even have a higher capacity or a higher powered cartridge, things of this nature. So, uh, because it you know it's a hunting looking rifle, it's fine, but if it's a scary military style looking gun, then it's it's death incarnate. So, uh, Drake, you were going to jump that, in on that. Yeah, I know that around 2015 and previous to that, you got out of the 10,000 roughly per year homicides by gun, roughly 400 of them were by rifle. So that's what, 4%, I believe? Like, I know that's, yeah, around 4% of them were by rifle, a very small number, especially considering that the majority of gun violence is inner city, and that's a lot of handgun, even among school shootings and so-called mass shootings, the majority of them have been by handgun, Although, of course, if you look at the mass shooting data where they claim that even like getting shot by BB guns for people is a mass shooting, that's a bit different. But yeah, no, generally rifles are a very, very minor thing, and it's essentially like, I'm trying to think of a good metaphor of, it's like you're trying to crush an ant, so you wheel a tank through the front wall of your house. It's a tiny, tiny problem. Rifles are not a big deal, especially as we've been saying this whole time. Compared to death due to the war on drugs, compared to U.S. military shootings overseas, like shootings, fatal shootings by police every year outnumbers rifle shootings, fatal shootings by rifles by three to one, I believe. Like it's it's a very small number. Well, aren't aren't hammers? More dangerous, the cause of most death 
I think it was like yeah, I think hammers are five hundred or so, or baseball here. bats. I think baseball bats are responsible for more deaths than anything else. If I'm not FDA approved drugs, uh, result in twenty to thirty thousand deaths per year. Well, FDA denied drugs is a hundred thousand plus. <laughs> right, yeah, and I would add go. those to all those uh, democide numbers. You know, the the cost of regulation and government intervention. Those should all get chalked up onto that death by government. Oh, I got that book today uh, or yesterday, the the study. I, I, <laughs> there's also a big thing where people try to claim about all of the deaths from toddlers and all this stuff about children having accidents and killing themselves. Muted. And those numbers are microscopic. <clears throat> I think they're, if I remember correctly, they're in this <clears throat> double two digits even, like tiny numbers. Far more ki- children get killed every year by like ovens or hair heating curling irons or things like toddlers die from anything it's not gun accidents it's just like they die from accidents a lot yep um, i'm gonna say also i'm gonna say one final thing i don't i think i mentioned this earlier and then i'll pass it on to someone else who talked a little bit earlier about how the left wants to ban all the guns and since i have a Brazilian flag on my wall or that direction i can't not mention this Brazil banned all um, gun ownership by civilians, a few, I don't even remember, a couple of decades back, I believe. And the mafia in Brazil literally started their own gun manufacturing factories. And now we have 3D printers where you can make your own gun. Like, I can make my own gun. I can just go out and buy the stuff and do it right now. And... So when you have people saying that eliminating all guns is something realistic, they're just wrong. Sorry. I remember that was brought up earlier. I want to make sure to hit on that. Um, actually, you know what? Let's pass it back to the host, Patrick, because it seems we're kind of playing out here, and he can direct us, a oh, glorious leader. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say that the – so maybe to bring this into a talking with the left kind of thing, because – the thing that I get the most that I really hate hearing is no one wants to come take your guns. No one is advocating to come and disarm everyone. And that's false because, like, my friends have said that in the past. Oh, no one, no, no one wants to come take your guns away. We just want common sense legislation, right? And the term common sense, I think, is funny, ironically used. But, what I mean, what do you... We could point to the the instances in which people really have. I mean, instances recently. I know when the Hurricane Katrina happened, they were going door to door disarming people, and then we hear in um, Hawaii all the legal marijuana prescription uh, patients were instructed to turn their guns in, and so I, I think that's just disingenuous, you know. And this this whole thing just infuriates me. So what what do you guys think about that? I'll probably pass it um, to Robert since we haven't heard Robert in a while. So what are what are some of the common arguments that you hear on the left side? Well, yeah, they um, when they say common sense, usually it means, like you said, um, keeping the hands out of felons or crazy people, and right away. You've got this monopoly power that is in charge of determining who's a felon or who's a crazy person. Um, Being anti-government 
anti you have like an anti-authority complex. You can get branded with the uh, the crazy the crazy label. Um, can we talk about the insane conviction rate in federal courts and the, the massive amount of resources that it takes to defend yourself against false allegations or true allegations, but any kind of allegations in this monopoly legal system that essentially boils down to, hey, just just cop to this minor minor offense. And, you know, this will all go away. You don't have to fight this big, long legal battle that will take years and cost tens of thousands of dollars and drag your name through the mud. Just admit to this charge. You'll get a slap on the wrist. Oh, and by the way, now you're a felon. And now we can limit your access to any number of things, guns being one of them, international travel, being on no-fly lists. Good luck trying to get your name off of there. I My name is on there just because I share a name with some guy in the 70s who did one thing, apparently. And, he, and Robert Johnson's a common name. I mean, this is ridiculous. So I am Unmuted. super wary. And, and, you know, the left, they're not, they don't seem to be worried about any of this stuff. Or if they do, they think it's a problem that can be solved by government. And they don't understand the incentives, the incentives for the lack of incentives on government to actually provide a, a service that is responsive to its customers. Yeah, and I, so, I, I just don't, I don't understand that. Sorry to interrupt you, but I just don't understand no, that disconnect. And that's what infuriates me is that, you know, they take the moral high ground and then they virtue signal all day long about, oh, you want little kids to die. Oh, you're so violent. Oh, you know, this and this and that. And... We, if you watch the footage, you see a bunch of big, strong, militarily armed police show up with huge black guns, and they're the same ones that they hate. But it's good when we put it in the hands of a state agent, and and that's really what grinds my gears is that they take this moral high ground and then they virtue signal, and but they're okay with that, you know, they're okay with that. Well, can I jump in here? Yeah. I, I think one of the problems is that. Many people who make that argument that you just uh, verbalized, they think that – I think they think that the training or the the personality of people in the position to protect them in official capacities is somehow different than their own. And it's not. I can tell you it's not. Police officers are human beings. They make mistakes. They forget things that they're trained on. If they don't practice them, it, it leaves them. So police officers make mistakes because they're humans, and humans make mistakes, blanket category. So if a police officer is a human, they are going to make mistakes. They're going to forget things. It doesn't matter how trained they are. I'm Not to cause any scandal, but let me tell you, on the firing range when we were training, there were some mistakes made, so much so that several officers I worked with had their firearms taken away from them and were put on desk duty for a while. No one will ever know that, but these are not uh, these are not perfect marksmen who could step into the Olympics and and do the do the biathlon uh, and and hit five targets in a row instantaneously. Uh, the qualification standards were you have to hit the target 80% of the time. Okay, that might sound difficult, and let me tell you, firearms are not the easiest thing in the world. Uh, if you haven't shot a gun, you should go do it. It's, not only is it wildly fun, but it's a fantastic skill to have. 
Um, it's not an easy thing unless you're trained properly and you practice frequently. So you might hear the, the, the percentage 80%. And again, this was in the state where I was a law enforcement officer. Every state might have a different standard. So any of you who are listening or watching this and you, know, you want to call BS on my 80% number, fine. It might be different where you're from. All that aside, 80% might sound like a difficult number to attain. But you have to remember these qualification standards, at least where I was from, were from 5 yards, 10 yards, and 25 yards on a stationary target after you had had no physical activity. Now, put yourself in a shooting situation where your heart rate is pumping, you are breathing so heavily you cannot get your arms to steady themselves, you cannot see down the barrel of your, of your firearm, and maybe you're farther away than 25 yards, or maybe you're wrestling with the person at the same time. None of this is practiced. I mean, some very advanced firearms courses do, so to be fair, some people do, but most don't. Uh, and most departments qualify once a year. My department was considered progressive because we qualified four times a year. Um, I don't know, man. My whole point here is that when a, when a liberal or a leftist or even anyone, it doesn't matter what their label is, when someone says, well, I don't have a problem with the police having firearms because they're trained. Man, let me tell you, there are some NRA people, and by the way, I'm not a huge NRA fan, but there are some NRA people uh, that, that, can, that are just much better marksmen and train far better than the police do. And they train not only in how to shoot, but when and why to shoot. And so this notion that these police officers, these these federal agents, state agents, you know, the, the freaking uh, DMV is going to be armed before we know it, that, that these people are somehow perfect in their firearms skills and in their decision-making process, it's just lunacy. People have to realize that, and I think that's something that we shouldn't just let go over when they say, well, I don't mind because they're trained. Okay, show me their training, define their training, and put them side by side to, you know, the the redneck down the street that goes to the range five times a week. Yeah. Right. The redneck's probably shooting better. Yeah. Well, so I... wasn't it just a few weeks ago where people were upset at police for shooting at people too often and the whole Black Lives Matter thing and the government and, and guns and police, it's systemic racism and... and we need more accountability and all this other stuff. And now an event happens, and it's like they flipped a switch, and now all of a sudden the police and the government can do no wrong, even though they fell down uh, at every touch point on this particular situation. So it's just really bizarre to me that they can be so uh, can flip so quickly from, you know, police are, are evil incarnate and racist and and killing black people in disproportionate numbers, and now they're our only hope. Obi Wan, you're our only hope. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And it, 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 it absolves themselves of individual responsibility. Like, wouldn't you rather be able to defend yourself and your family given that you're faced in a situation where, where the consequences are dire? Or would you rather have um, you know, a, a phone call and uh, a wait for assistance to arrive? And I, I just don't understand the mindset, you know? And if... Again, if you don't want to have a gun, don't have one. I wouldn't advertise the fact, but don't go advocating for no one to be able to have one because you do benefit when the criminals don't know if someone might have a gun. I'd even, I'd even, I'd even advocate people get those funny signs that just have a picture of a gun to say, this house protected by Smith & Wesson. 
I don't care if you do or not. I can almost promise you, you put that sign two or three places around your house, most crime is opportunistic. People are going to look at that and go, uh, not, not worth it. Yeah. Well, if I could, I wanted to make a point about um, Mance Raider is really good at this. And he'll, well, I don't know what the average police response time is, and maybe we'll get to that in a second. But just, he made the point that, how many police officers are there in New York City? I think like 50,000, maybe 100,000. There's a lot of police officers in New York City. And he was saying, and he has a lot of cop friends, former cop friends from NYC, and he was saying that there were only two places for them to practice shooting their weapons inside the New York City. And you can kind of see that with the... Um, I think there was a case where the police officers in New York City were shooting at, at fleeing suspects, and they hit like two or three bystanders during this chase. And yeah, I just think that's so telling. But uh, did anyone else have any comments? Well, I just I just keep wondering when or if you know government is ever going to get any kind of blame. Like I know the FBI supposedly getting some sort of blame for failure to act. But these shootings keep happening in public schools where government run them, government supposedly, you know, are there to, you know, you're, you're placing your children in their hands, but there's no incentive because there's never any direct negative consequence of them failing to do a thing. So I just wonder, is it just going to happen forever? Or is it just going to get to a point where, you know, moms are going to be like, give me a revolver. I'm going to sit in the back of the room and I'm going to make sure my kid comes home. I don't know. Um, I'm going to say one other thing about this, just relating to the training or lack thereof with firearms. Um, it's... It's a question of market allocation. Like, not every cop needs to be really good at shooting. Like, I live in Westerville, which is the city where recently there were the two cops killed. Um, if you've heard about that, probably uh, everyone in Ohio has. Um, that was the first time a cop had ever been killed in 130 years since the town was founded. You don't really need to be a good shot if you're in a really nice suburbia area, but if I'm living in Detroit, I would rather pay extra to have the cops at my kid's school be the best. And that's kind of a thing where you have to allocate resources, and under a government monopolized system, you don't. You don't have uh, the cops that are the best shots, the bravest, and the places we most want to and need to protect. You don't have... Sometimes you have almost no police at all in very dangerous areas. Like it's the system's not working, and a lot of the reason we can't change it is because the only way to change it is through the awful process that is the government. Yeah, and, and well, sorry, you want to finish? No, I was going to pass, pass it on to you. So because I remember, I remembered that. Oh wait, pass it on. Uh, to Patrick. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I and I. I'll offer this point, and then I think we'll we'll have our concluding remarks, and then we'll plug our independent stuff and, and call it a night. But 
my thing is, oh man, and how convenient on the the right hand side, uh, the conservative side too. This is like a gift from the heavens. This idea of well, let's take um, unemployed veterans and then load them up with their combat gear and then deploy them in every public school in the country. What the hell? I mean, what is this? Yeah, what what do you think they're gonna do? You know, how many mass shootings do we have? I mean, it's a tiny, tiny number. And then we're going to just have these veterans. I mean, this is a thinly veiled welfare program. You know, uh, it's like ditch digging. We're just going to have these, you know, veterans with PTSD with (laughs) assault rifles in our children's elementary schools. What are they going to do? They're just going to sit around watching closed circuit television? Or are they going to patrol around with an AR-15 or something? I mean, this is just, it gets, it's convenient for both sides and it's kind of disgusting. And the, so, I mean, what they're really going to end up doing is just be, you know, the, the secret SS police of the school. And they're going to end up, you know, as we see with school police officers, now they're confronting students and throwing students to the ground and uh, putting handcuffs on eight year olds and strapping them to chairs and stuff. There's been cases about this and, I think it's just sickening. So I I don't see any good solution, you know, as as it usually is, something happens and you get bad ideas from both sides. And uh, yeah, so I hear someone breathing. Does anyone want to take that? Yeah, that that's me breathing, Patrick. There you and go. I just wanted to to throw something at you. Um the idea that that we're going to put these um returning veterans to work being resource officers at these schools, I think that that's already happening. I mean, I'm isn't sure that is. where most of the police force are coming from is, is seeing combat experience coming back to the United States and then they're being put into these positions. Um, but I did want to also bring up, and, and one of our um, commenters has brought this up, but you did a show on this, uh, libertyweekly.net slash 46, on the uh, Warren uh, decision where the police actually have no duty to protect. And that's another thing I, I just wanted to bring up and throw it right back at you, Patrick, because... The leftists want the police to be there to protect you, but uh, the Supreme Court, I, I believe it was, um, ruled that they have no duty to do so. So, um, really, they're asking for a false promise. Yeah, and well, it's if I could, the case is, and I, I, I can't think of the number right now. That uh, the episode number, it was in the 40s, I think. 40s, 46. 46. Okay, so LibertyWeekly.net forward slash 46. I did a case brief of Warren v. District of Columbia. I think the biggest misconception about the case is that it is actually, it is not a Supreme Court case. It is a D.C. Court of Appeals case. So D.C., as we know, the city is its own political unit, just like a state. So there's two courts. There's the D.C. District Courts, and then there's the D.C. Court of Appeals, which is the court of last resort. So it'd be like the Supreme Court of the District of Columbia. So it's not an overly important court case, but the, the what they articulate in the case is that there is this wide, widely recognized uh, font of tort law that police officers cannot be liable to protect any given individual. And the reason why liberals won't win on that issue is because if we found that police officers owe every single individual a duty to protect them, then the state would be sued by every single person that has something happen wrong to them. Um, it, it just is, it doesn't work because, and, and this is a kind of, 
it'll take longer to explain this than I think is worth it. So I direct people to that episode, libertyweekly.net forward slash 46. Uh, it just has to do with tort law. If you don't undertake a duty, we can't hold you. If you don't undertake a specific duty, we can't find you liable. So in general, that means that a police officer maybe driving, and this is a case that I talked about in in that episode, is that a police officer was driving, saw a drunk person get into a car and pull out of a bar and followed the drunk person and could have pulled them over but did not. And the drunk person ended up killing people and hitting a family and killing them. Well, the court found that there was no specific duty that was undertaken there. And so the police officer wasn't liable. So does that make any sense? So so the police officer had to undertake a duty to stop and arrest this person who was drunk. And and just just by seeing them and noticing that they're doing a crime, they didn't have to undertake. You know, maybe Mike could back me up here. Does does any of this sound familiar to you? Yeah, no, it definitely does. So this this piggybacks it, it makes worse the idea of qualified immunity which police officers have. Um so basically if a police officer violates your rights, um the idea of qualified immunity is that um, that they personally are not going to be held criminally liable. Now they could be held civilly liable under um, civil rights violations and things like that. But um, if if in a failure to act or something like that, um, or in in the uh, in the act of doing their job, as long as they follow their policies and things like that, if there's a bad outcome, they can't be held liable. Is what qualified immunity is and what you've just spoken about piggybacks on top of that and makes it even worse to say that not only are they not going to be held responsible but now it's just it's just on the books that if they do nothing at all they can't be civilly sued to say well this person in this house called 911 and you didn't get there in time and so the department it doesn't matter the department is not liable because they're not responsible for having the right amount of people. I mean, this gets into the social contract, at least in my opinion. If this was a private relationship, there would be very explicit contractual terms as to what duties will be provided, by whom, what kind of force uh, readiness will be maintained at all times. This kind of stuff would be spelled out, and if that contract is breached and you are harmed, you would have uh, the means to uh, to rectify that situation through arbitration or some sort of lawsuit. Mm -hmm. But with the social contract that nobody signs and has absolutely no terms, what we've learned from the, the, the you know, not the Supreme Court, but the, the this case that we're referencing, what we've learned is that there's no recourse to the social contract. The social contract doesn't have any terms that we can go back to and say, well, the police are provided by my tax dollars, therefore they must protect me. And the answer is no, they mustn't. Yeah. And well, I, so I, I felt like I didn't articulate that very well. What, what you were saying with the, the, this like uh security contract that you were talking about, that is, that is a specific duty. That is a specific relationship between two parties. That's well-defined. They're both informed. Okay. I have to protect the Johnson family. That's my duty. Well, the, the, what's articulated in the Warren v. DC case is that, um, the police cannot be sued for not acting, even if they should have acted. And, and that's what you're getting at. And um, so so if 
it has to be an affirmative action in order for them to be found negligent. So if a police officer negligently discharges his firearm, that would be something you could sue for because he undertook an action. Whereas even, whereas non-action wouldn't bring liability because there's no duty. You didn't take an action, if that clarifies it. So, Patrick, I, I have a question for you. I've, I've heard that there's a related case, and, and it's real fuzzy for me, but that there was um, a woman who had a restraining order against uh, a, a husband or a, you know, someone they had a relationship with, and the police failed to act on threats made by the person who had the restraining order against them, and that they were absolved of not um, dealing with this, and, and the woman was harmed or, or murdered as a result, and it, again, it's real fuzzy, but does this sound vaguely familiar at all, and does it make sense that they, at that point, did have a duty to protect because there was, in fact, a restraining order and a report of imminent threat and harm? Yes, Castle Rock v. Gonzalez is the case, and that's a Supreme Court case, so that is a Supreme Court case. Um, so the fact pattern, as you said, the it's very infuriating. The woman had a restraining order against her estranged husband. A strange husband shows up, kidnaps the three children from the front yard. She calls all throughout the day trying to get the police to act. They don't act. Uh, the dad calls, has the kids at an amusement park in Denver, and she goes to the police station, begs them to please enforce this, put out an all-points bulletin. They laugh her off and have dinner and this is in the middle of the night and the kids were abducted around 6 p.m i think it was and so essentially uh she calls the police like six times shows up at the police station twice and what happens at about 2 a.m is that the dad shows up at the police station commits suicide via cop and in the front seat are three dead girls and the question is whether or not the supreme court could use the 14th amendment to enforce and find a property interest in the enforcement of a restraining order and find the the city of Castle Rock liable under the 14th Amendment. And they did not find liability. Surprise, surprise. Um, but that was through the 14th Amendment, and there's some federalism concerns because we don't want the Supreme Court court enforcing liability but they said that castle rock the city of castle rock had the ability to find statutorily to find liability and a property interest in the enforcement of that restraining order they did not and there is no state level legislation that would find a property interest there but in the dissent the most liberal justice ruth gator uh, ruth bader ginsburg in her dissent because she wanted liability in her dissent, she stated that surely, and I'm quoting here from my memory, surely if the respondent had um, had a contract with a private security agency and they were negligent like Castle Rock was, then surely there would be liability there. So you're getting this false di dichotomy of, so so if if private individuals don't undertake a duty, then they can't be found negligent. Well, they're treating the police officers the same way that they're treating private individuals, when in fact we would, and police officers claim to have this monopoly service on pro providing protection. Well, they claim the service, so they get all the benefits of being a private citizen, but non, none of the negatives. Um, so I hope that clears it up. It's a, it's a complicated thing to try and explain, 
this this idea of tort law that we don't impose liability on people who don't undertake duties. Well, I guess the gist of it, if I could sum it up, is that the the police have undertaken this duty, but the the state is still treating them as if they hadn't, as if they were just a private citizen. So, I hope that clears it up. That was a little a bit of a longer explanation than I was intending, but. Right, and in summary, I guess we'd essentially be saying that the general consensus, uh, especially from the left, is that the police are there for protection, even though, you know, two weeks ago they were marching in Black Lives Matter, protesting police violence. Um, that they have a false belief in that that protection is actually going to happen, and that that there's even enough police to do it, and, and they should they know better. <laughs> Right, and they want to absolve themselves of, of having the responsibility of, of having, like Mike was talking about, situational awareness. I mean, make sure that you're not putting yourself in a dangerous area or dangerous situation. Make sure you do lock your doors and have your lights on and put a sign up that says protected by Smith & Wesson and have a firearm on the premises. You know, whatever whatever you are personally comfortable with uh, and make sure that you're properly trained uh, in, in how to effectively utilize that firearm, that rescue safety equipment. Uh, so that's just, I, I just want to leave it, um, I, I know we need to wind this down, with the left screaming for government to provide the solutions by disarming people at the point of a gun when the government is responsible for upwards of 400 million deaths in the 20th century alone, I think is is totally misguided and a completely ridiculous situation, and they're very, very, very incongruent in their uh, logic and in their perception on uh, how things actually work in the real world. Um, I think that you really need to focus on individual responsibility and um, get away from these monopoly, uh, government-imposed, you know, you must pay for the service whether you get it or not, and uh, they get to determine unilaterally what level of service they will provide. I mean, that's that's no way to, to have a, a functioning system. So that's where I'm going to leave it, um, and I'll just throw my pitch in here. We do the Actual Anarchy podcast at actualanarchy.com. Check it out. We talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. So there we go. Excellent. Yeah, so closing, I'll, I'll hand it off to the next person. But So closing remarks and then plug your stuff. So I'll hand it off to Drake then. Drake, you're Sorry, I was still okay. muted. Yep. Oh, okay, gotcha. I was like out of that. Yep, trying to make my chair squeaky, so... Didn't want to bother you too much. Um, closing remarks. We're seeing here is that even if people are well-intentioned, the government model doesn't work. The arguments against gun control are the same wrong ones we've seen a thousand times over. It's just this time the people that are saying them are scared children who were through a traumatic experience and should probably be spending time with a counselor rather than um, being repeatedly praised the more they say things against guns. It's the the height of a logical fallacy. Like a, um, so that's the main thing. Um, and also, if you want to have a really fun time, um, go to Google Shopping and type in various things. If you put an AR-15, no results. If you put an assault weapon, no results. Actually, if you put an assault gun, no results. If you put an assault weapon, there are results. Put an M4 carbine, there are results. So just kind of play and see what Google tries to stop you from buying. It's just a fun little game if you know a lot of gun names. Um, 
but I really don't have much to plug. Uh, most activism is pretty local around my campus, so I'm going to say generic plug, plug for the Libertarian Union, doing lots of good things, and I keep getting invited on their shows, don't know why. <laughs> so that's where you'll find my stuff, or if you search uh, YAL Cincinnati Debate, you'll see me debate socialist, Republicans, Democrats, um, or... But you repeat yourself. I do repeat myself. <laughs> I, I will say that there was a slight difference when Democrats said they're in favor of regulated capitalism and the socialists said we're in favor of destroying all capitalism and socialism will only work once it is universal and applied to all countries at once. That's why there's no real socialism so far because it hasn't been applied everywhere at once. But yeah, no, that, that's, that's a... That's a whole episode of its own, just how, how many bad arguments they made. <laughs> that sounds convenient. Convenient as hell. Well, I'm going to hand it off to uh, Mike next, but here's a little starter for you, Mike. I'm, I'm sure that you're a gun guy as well, but what, what does assault rifle even mean? That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so the answer to your question is nobody knows what assault rifle means. Uh, different governing bodies and different uh, Twitter eggs throughout the universe will tell you that assault rifle means that it has certain characteristics, that it has uh, the ability to be easily modified to shoot fully automatic. Most people don't know what the difference between fully automatic and semi-automatic is, and we're not here to go into that. That's not the point of this. But um, yeah, I think the point you're making is well taken, which is uh, it's very difficult to ban something that you can't first define. We can't define what an assault rifle is, uh, and, and it is an assault rifle any different than an assault pistol and an assault baseball bat? And some people would say, well, yeah, because it can kill so many people at once. Well, what about an assault bomb? What about an, you know, many of these things are already illegal. People don't care. And even the ones that aren't illegal, you can't define them. So how does the state know what to ban? Um, so that's infuriating in and of itself. But I, I guess my closing remark is going to be this. Um, we don't want to find ourselves in a situation where the only people that have the means to use the ultimate equalizer, and make no mistake, the firearm is the ultimate equalizer, whether it's a 98-pound woman defending herself against a rape or uh, a, a frail 85-year-old uh, man defending himself against uh, a strong-arm robbery. The ultimate equalizer is the firearm, and we do not want to find ourselves in a situation where only the state has that equalizer. Um, and so that's my biggest plug for firearms ownership and training and awareness and things like that. Um, if you want to hear more from me and, and, and my take on things and get a rudimentary education in all topics libertarian, then head on over to battleforliberty.com. You can go to facebook.com slash battleforliberty or find me on Twitter at mybattleliberty. Um, at the website, battleforliberty.com, you'll hear my story about how I was a police officer and uh, stared directly into the belly of the beast uh, and, and, and what changed things for me. I talk all about the books that changed my mind and my journey from uh, truly a, a big R Republican statist thinking that America could do no wrong and police could do no wrong and anyone who disliked the police was un-American and... You know, all, all of that stuff, I went from that to a, a true Rothbardian uh, voluntarist. Uh, if you are finding yourself questioning things the way I questioned things about five five to ten years ago now, 
you're going to want to check out Battle for Liberty because I go through my story and I go through many different topics and I explain step by step how the things you thought you knew just aren't so. So uh, I'll uh, I'll shoot it over. Do we need to hit up? Uh, I think Robert should say a word or two, even though Daniel already spoke. Agreed. Yeah, I'll, I'll offer my closing thoughts. Um, listen, uh, uh, banning guns works. Uh, it it worked for alcohol during Prohibition, and it worked for uh, drugs in the War on Drugs. So I don't know what you guys are talking about. Um, obviously, obviously, making something illegal doesn't make it go away. You can't legislate human behavior. People are going to have a desire for a, uh, a product. They're going to have a desire to protect themselves, and they should. They have every right to satisfy those desires. And government, it can't protect you. It can't, can't protect your children. It can't educate your children. I, I because government is a monopoly and they have no incentive to provide a better service than what they already do. Uh, if it was a market, you would be able to withdraw your support to services that you don't deem adequate and put your money and your support towards services you do deem adequate. And we would quickly come to the best way to protect our kids and to educate our kids, but we don't. So I advocate getting your kids out of these public schools. Uh, they're being indoctrinated into statism anyway. It's no good having them in there in the first place. And then they can't protect them either. So if you can, homeschool them. If you can't, uh, look at you know private school alternatives. I understand you're already paying taxes to fund these government re-education camps. I understand. But it really is, really is the best alternative. So uh, it's been an honor and a, and a white privilege talking to you assholes tonight. I want to thank you for having me on the show. And um, I'm on the Actual Anarchy podcast with my buddy Daniel. We uh, analyze movies from a Rothbardian perspective. We also do the uh, the Last Nighters. And I'm going to have my own Trubster website. It's just going to be a uh, web cartoon, like a cartoonist type cartoon uh, that'll be out twice a week on Trumpster.com. You can also find my t-shirts on uh, TeePublic and stuff like that. So uh, that's it for me. Thanks a lot. Uh, Patrick, for closing? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, well, ev well said, everyone. Uh, it's been, I think, a very productive discussion. And just wanted to reiterate that we do these uh, State of the Libertarian Union talk shows on the final Sunday of every month. And this one was for the month of February. So had a few te technical difficulties before we went on today. We always, this is the bugaboo. We have a lot of technical difficulties here. And uh, the Libertarian Union plug got messed up and it was my fault. So I'm going to tell the guys about this afterwards, but I'm going to close with that plug. So without further ado, uh, without further ado, here it is. days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. 
Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com.